来嘛来嘛，不然死嘞！等你嘞，不然死嘞！等你嘞，来嘛来嘛！哎，来来来，不然死嘞！等你嘞，好呀！哎。Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today, I'm joined by Marie Lal, a professor in education and South Asian studies at the University College London Institute of Education, to talk about understanding reform in Myanmar: People and Society in the Wake of Military Rule, published in 2016 by Hearst. Marie, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. Marie, these are exciting times for people in Myanmar and for anyone interested in the country as well. And your book really is positioned to explain how and why we've gone from unmediated and unapologetic military rule in the mid two thousands to a National League for Democracy government led by, led de facto by Doang San Suu Kyi. You offer insights from over a decade of experience working in the country from the mid two thousands to the present. So, could you begin by telling us a bit about what drew you to Myanmar or Burma, and give us some sense of the professional and personal experiences you've had there that have contributed to the ideas and contents of the book? Yes, it's really amazing to see the changes that have happened.、Um, the story actually starts. Um, in the year 2000, I was in Calcutta. I、um, had a week on my hand, which nowadays never happens, and、um, I was able to get a visa to and get a direct flight from Calcutta to Yangon for a week.、Um, I'd never been to Myanmar before. I'd heard about it a lot because when I was growing up, my father had spent some time in what was then Burma in the 1970s as a WHO official. Um, and so I was just curious, and I arrived in a country where, where there was virtually no streetlights and no cars, and it was、um, it was very it, it felt very backward, so different from what I was used to from India and Pakistan, where I was working、um, at the time.、Um, and a couple of years later, so I was intrigued, and I wanted to go back, and I wanted to、um, work on the country, but it, obviously it was considered、um, it was under sanctions. It was considered. Uh, off, off, not, not, not the kind of country you could just go in and do research. So I came across、um, through a colleague. I came across Bob Taylor, who was、um, taking academics out to actually do work in、um, Myanmar universities in 2000. He started this in 2004,、um, and he was basically bringing people out with、um, German Foundation money. To engage with Myanmar colleagues and give them an, uh, a, a way of engaging with research outside of their country. There was no internet for them. There was no. They didn't have access to journals, to books. And the idea was that we would, that the handful of academics, some from Singapore, me from London, a couple from Japan,、um, would engage with them and do sort of a sort of summer training course, so that they would be able to、um, access what was going on in the outside world. And so、uh, when I came across this, I said, "Yes, I want to be part of this." And I went、um, first for a conference. He asked me to first go for a conference and sort of meet colleagues there. That way,、um, the Myanmar Historical Commission had a conference in January two thousand and five, and I landed in Yangon. And as we all know, in two thousand and four, in、um, the autumn of two thousand and four, Kim Yun, who was the head of military intelligence and who really had kept the screws on the development of civil society, no one could really. Um, do anything, say anything,、uh, without being at risk of going to jail. He had been put under house arrest. So when I landed in January two thousand and five, I met colleagues who said, "Well, there's you know military intelligence in disarray. You can actually pretty much go and do whatever you like."
uh, for a few weeks anyway. And I was in the country just for a very short period, just for a week or 10 days. And I started meeting colleagues uh, through universities, but also because I have an interest in schools, I started visiting schools and um, a, a budding private school network, which was started by um, someone who's now a friend of mine. And that is how I got engaged with the country. And then Bob uh, and Joing Lang, who was co-organizing this training for academics, um, took me out in the summer of 2005. And then I went back again in the autumn of 2005 and I met Dr. Nguyen Ma, and that's where the story starts. So I started engaging with um, the founders of what became later on in 2006, Myanmar Egress, at the end of 2005. And Dr. Nguyen Ma, who's really the protagonist of my story, is um, was, was a medical doctor who'd gone away from medicine and um, decided to be a journalist. And his belief was that you... He wanted change for the country. A lot of people want to change, but that the change had to be had to happen within what was possible inside. So pushing the boundaries, obviously, at, with certain risks attached, but not in terms of revolution or the, not not the way the NLD had been doing it. And he had spent a summer at Yale University, and um, that had sort of opened his eyes on political change. And so Nehemiah and I started co- collaborating, and I sort of tried to help where I could, and there were others, many others like me who, who were who are part of this network as well, who started going in and started taking part and training um, our fellow Myanmar colleagues to sort of do adult education and access people who had not had the chance to go to universities because the universities had been closed in the late 1980s and 1990s after the student protest movements. So the idea was social change from the inside pushing change within what was possible. And it was possible because Kinyon was gone. And it was also possible because there was a roadmap to quote unquote democracy. And this roadmap was widely publicized. Everyone knew there would be a constitution which was imposed from above. Everyone knew this constitution would lead to an election which was going to be tightly controlled by the military. But it did mean that there was going to be some wiggle room to maneuver change. And within that wiggle room, that's what the founders of Myanmar Egress decided, they were going to try and push for as much as they could get. And you know, that's where that's where I came, that's where I came in and a number of my colleagues came in as well. As you've mentioned them a couple of times already, tell us a bit more about Myanmar Egress and how did they collaborate with other organizations and individuals around Myanmar to progress this uh, project that you've just described? So Myanmar Egress was um, a collaboration of a number of young men from very different backgrounds, um, uh, all Burmese, um, who came together with a vision for change, but not necessarily with an agreed uh, blueprint. So it was all of this started in the early 2000s um, with Nguyen Maon and Demontan um, driving around in a car and sort of uh, discussing the state of affairs of the country. And the only place they could discuss this safely was in the car, because anywhere else they would have been eavesdropped upon. And um, bringing like-minded people together. And um, so Myanmar Egress evolved out of that little bit of space that was created in 2005, 2006. But it actually emulated, and I don't think Myanmar Egress founders would agree with me on this, but I think it emulated what we had seen 
civil society groups do in the ethnic areas after we had the um, the first set of ceasefires um, in the 1990s and 2000s. So um, what had happened with when Kinyunt had gone around uh, agreeing, gentlemen's agreements of ceasefires across the country with the except, big exception of Karen, obviously the KNU never um, signed a ceasefire, never agreed a ceasefire, but he'd gone around from group to group to group, starting you know, with, with the Mon and with the Kachin and with various Shan groups, and that had created, um, well, on the one side, it, it made everyone very rich because the Tatmadaw and the um, and the ethnic armed groups were able to sort of divide the economic spoils of the natural resources. But it, because no one was shooting anymore, it allowed for civil society to come in. And so we see the, um, the development of the Meta Foundation, for example. We see development of Shalom, uh, NAC Foundation. And so these are groups which then start... Uh, going straight into areas where the state has failed, into education, for example, but also into livelihoods um, and sort of helping people build lives, supporting people building lives. And in many ways, uh, Myanmar Egress wasn't different. It did exactly the same thing. As soon as that space opened up, um, they had that same vision of we need to educate people, we need to support people within a process of change. And there, uh, collaboration is perhaps too strong a word, but Myanmar Egress was open to collaboration with pretty much anyone. In fact, it was uh, um, at, the, at the time in sort of 2007, there were very there were just a handful of civil society organizations, and all the leaders of these different civil society organizations, be it Janan Lato or be it Dor Seng Ro, all these people knew each other. They were all meeting and exchanging ideas. Uh, Myanmar Egress was part of this network. And um, perhaps it wasn't a collaboration. It was a, we are all working for the same goal, for change in the country. And we're doing it slowly and incrementally, pushing the boundaries so that we can actually bring about a bigger change. But in terms of sort of, you know, sort of alliances or collaborations, that rarely happens, Nick, as you very well know. <laughs> Um, different organizations in Myanmar tend to not find it very easy to collaborate with each other. It's all very much based on a leader's vision. And so, you know, different organizations do things differently. What was great was that Myanmar Egress was able to communicate with all these different groups. The other thing which is perhaps important to understand is that Myanmar Egress, because it was the only Bama outlet which was able to do things like adult training, education, and so on and so forth, became the darling of international donors. So um, the FID and, and, and German foundations and the World Bank and God knows us over the years, not instantly, it took a long time before the first funds started flowing. In fact, first funds started sort of to come in 2007, 2008, and that's also linked to what happened with Nargis. Um, but money started flowing because they were seen as the only organization that could get things done without being closed down by the regime. And so that made, obviously, that contributed to growth um, and contributed to uh, expanded influence. You were just flagging events in 2007 and 2008. And as we know, a, a lot has happened in Myanmar during the decade that your book covers. So for listeners who haven't followed the country closely, perhaps before we proceed, can you give us a short account of the most important moments in this period as you see them and Feel free to add any additional references to people and institutions that matter for our understanding of what's happened in Myanmar. Well, 2007 was um, 
a really interesting time because uh, we had what the press then dubbed the Saffron Revolution in September 2007, which was neither Saffron nor was it really a revolution. Um, but it was when all the monks came out on the streets and you had these fantastic photos of people on the streets protesting. So it was very much a watershed moment for Myanmar because it felt to many that um, you know, the society was coming out on the streets and was going protesting against this repressive regime. And actually, um, yes, there were protests, but actually they started as economic protests. So um, uh, the, the, it's really ironic, actually, because the World Bank had said, um, as they do uh, for many years, that um, this high subsidy, that the state subsidies and fuel needed to stop. Not that the World Bank was particularly active in Myanmar, it wasn't there, but it was one of those messages, international messages, that the regime was, you know, that was one of the things the regime was doing wrong. Well, someone in the regime at some point decided, oh, yes, well, we get rid of the subsidies overnight. And it wasn't the first time that this had happened. But when it did happen, then people suddenly couldn't pay for their bus ticket to get to work because overnight, suddenly everything became unbelievably expensive. Um, and so that brought people on the street, out on the streets and it brought, brought the monks out on the streets as well because monks are immediately affected economically when people can't pay for their, you know, their bus fares and their food. Monks also receive fewer donations and the whole sort of thing spirals um, in, 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 into, into the Sangha as well. Um, so this is how the protest started. But the protest did take on a political turn. And um, within a few days, we were hearing cries for democracy. And um, I was actually in the country when this when this was happening. And I was sitting with friends and we were all saying, when is the military going to come out and shoot? Which they, in the end, actually did do. They did come out um, and, and shoot. Um, and everyone said, oh, we're going backwards. And this is, you know, there's going to be, we're going back to where we were in 1988. And all that little bit of incremental movement and reform that we had is all, is all finished. And actually it wasn't. Yes, it was awful with regard to all those people who were arrested. I mean, the Myanmar regime, um, the Tatmadaw were, and the uh, military intelligence were out. They were out and where they were photographing people. And then they came to their houses at night and um, arrested them and people were given 100 plus year sentences. I mean, it was it was ridiculous and draconian. Um, but with all that said and done, ultimately speaking, within about a month or two, apart from those who went to jail, life in, within the civil society network, not only Myanmar Egress, but everyone else, including Shalom and so on and so forth, were back to normal. They, you know, they didn't shut down the the, the trainings continued, the, the work that people were doing were continued. There wasn't a crackdown on those organizations that had been operating um, in, in Yangon and in, mainly Yangon, but also in, in some of the ethnic area, which is really interesting because it almost felt to us at that time that there might be a shift um, in the thinking at military level. So if you challenge the regime head on, you risk detention and, well, you, you get put away for trial and detention. But if you work and they don't perceive you as a threat, then you are able to do quite a lot. And that was, you know, actually what that meant is that suddenly Myanmar Egress, and I cannot speak for other organizations, but I know that with regard to Myanmar Egress, that they said, okay, this is clearly the way forward. And one of the things they started doing is, 
um, encouraging young people to document things. So not not go and protest, but document what what they saw and use that sort of sort of almost photojournalistic approach to get people involved. So document what you see, write about it, speak about it, but don't go out and stand um, as a protester because you'll achieve more that way. And that was that was a really interesting approach. That's 2007. And, um, and then 2008, so May 2008, two things happened. One is this um, constitution which has been written by uh, the military regime and imposed, so, you know, the National Convention had um, theoretically engaged with um, civil society and other and ethnic groups and so on, but actually no one's, no one's opinions were taken on board. This was just a document which had, which was written by the regime and imposed on the people. So that was going to be put down to a referendum. And um, at the same time in May, we have Cyclone Nargis, which, which strikes. And Cyclone Nargis is obviously a tragedy because it, uh, I don't have the figures in my head anymore, but it kills, oh, I think it's over 100,000 people um, in, in the Delta and it destroys uh, the Delta entirely economically. And, and in Yangon is severely affected. The whole of the South is affected. And you know the military is sitting in Nipidor and not re, you know first few days nothing happens at all and you know people are I have accounts I wasn't in the country at the time I have accounts from people of how you know the price food prices went up and obviously you know all these the dead bodies were there in in the delta and it was all terrible but what came out of this was really interesting um, so Timon Thanos told me um, that he walked across to the uh, um, Tanada Hotel, which is where the headquarters of Myanmar Egress were. And as the day, this is the day after Nargis is struck, so when everyone's woken up with all the broken trees in their, um, in their front yard, um, as the day went on, the students who had studied at Myanmar Egress, the alumni, all started, you know, started to come and gather, saying, what is it that we can do? And this is not only with Myanmar Egress, this was also the case with other civil society organizations. People started to gather around civil society leaders and say, we want to do something. But clearly the authorities are not, you know, they're not going into the Delta, they're not distributing food, they're not distributing blankets, they're not distributing water. And this is how you suddenly find that um, civil society is taking on the burden of what the state is supposed to do and starts going out into the Delta to deliver water, food, blankets, and because the regime uh, insists that international aid agencies are not allowed to go out there, I mean, they did actually allow for Asian aid agencies and Asian doctors. So we had Bangladeshi doctors and Thai doctors and Indian doctors. They were all allowed into the Delta. It's just um, the Western um, aid agencies weren't allowed direct access. The Western aid agencies start to fund different civil society organizations. So everything from just a small student movement, which gets which pops up on the day, right up to Myanmar Egress, which is a big organization by this point, is funded to go out and deliver aid in the Delta. And what this does is it strengthens civil society move, the civil society movement and those different organizations in a way that nothing else could have. The, the funds just kept flowing. People were able to go out there, get training, get em, effectively get employment. And for, for months, um, you find that these different organizations start collaborating with each other, delivering aid. And it's, it's, it, changes, it changes the possibilities of what civil society can do in the country. It also obviously allows 
Western aid agencies to start re-engaging with the country because they hadn't given the sanctions regime. And you suddenly find this influx of aid agencies into Yangon. And you know, the downside of that is that all the rents go up and um, and, and prices go up and, 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 and the fabric of what, how Yangon functions changes quite dramatically. I'll give you an example. I've normally stayed with a um, close friend of mine who had been, who's been, she's a foreigner, but she's lived in Yangon for over 20 years and she's a child psychologist. Um, and uh, overnight her rent doubled and her car that she was renting was taken away because um, the, the, the owner of the car and the owner of the house basically found that they could uh, rent out the car and the, um, and the house to, you know, sort of um, UNICEF or World Bank officials for sort of twice and three times and then later on five times the price. So yes, this did this this had negative effects as well. But it, broadly, um, Cyclone Nargis allowed uh, a collaboration between international aid agencies and Myanmar civil society, which ha- would not have been possible otherwise. And the, the fantastic thing is that those civil society organisations, which then suddenly multiplied in that period, start to, they remain active even beyond the crisis, and that's what really changes things. Perhaps two other years that um, the surf mentioned briefly before we continue the 2010 with the elections and 2012 with the by-election. Well, 2010. So, well, first we have the, as I said, the um, uh, uh, the um, uh, constitution, which has been put to a referendum at the same time that we have Cyclone Nargis so in in the Delta and in the Yangon. Um, uh, the the referendum is postponed. The referendum comes through with ridiculously high approval numbers in the sort of, I don't know, I can't remember if it was 98% or 99%, something absolutely. We all know that those those were fake results. But what, and, and in fact, there was one thing I didn't say earlier on, there was, what, there was a movement to, um, there was a movement across, Yangon's youth, uh, I suspect it was not so much across the rest of the country, but mainly Yangon and perhaps Mandalay, where people were saying we have to reject this constitution. But in the end, obviously, that that movement was um, even if people would have rejected the constitution, the military did come in and 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 stuff the ballot boxes, and we, um, you know, there was this massive approval approval of the constitution. But what's important there is that the constitution allows, well, sets sets the 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 way forward for an election. And now that we have the constitution in place and we know that there's going to be an election, which means that the trio at the top, Tanshui and company, are going to go, there is going to be a more participatory system provided provided that the Myanmar civil society organisations can get their act together and put people in place that are going to be able to take part in these elections. So between 2008 and 2010, a huge amount of work starts. And what happens is, well, first of all, the realization is we don't have any political parties because the NLD clearly says with this illegal constitution, a constitution that was not approved by the people, we are not, we don't want anything to do with this. We were against the constitution, we're against these elections, we want the 1990s election recognized. Those who disagree with that, the other side, um, are the people who say, we can't wait for 1990 to be recognized. We have waited 18 years, 19 years. It's going to be 20 years. We need to move forward. We need to find an alternative way through this quagmire. And one of the ways to do this is to start getting involved politically because politics becomes legal again overnight. You know, 
effectively, if you're going to have an election, you're going to have political parties. And uh, one of the things which happened was that to look at po- political opposition in an ethnic way, because um, the NLD wasn't going to stand and um, the USDA, which was the regime's association for all the employees of the state, becomes the USDP, which is the main regime party. And so they are going, they have all the, um, the money that they want, that they need to sort of have a, an MP standing in each and every constituency. Um, so how do you, how do you stand against such a state machine? And um, this is where you see the collaboration between Myanmar Egress and other civil society organizations, specifically ethnic civil society organizations. Uh, Myanmar Egress reaches out to different ethnic civil society organizations saying we need ethnic parties to be created. And the story goes, I wasn't there at the time, but the story goes, and I heard it from Nguyen Ma and I heard it from a number of other people, is that um, the different civil society leaders from ethnic organizations, be it from cultural literature society or uh, civil society leaders, leaders, ethnic leaders were invited to come to Yangon, sit in a room together and literally pushed to create political parties so that there would be um, Chin parties, Rakhine parties, Mon parties, or at least one um, that would be able to stand. And part of that uh, process also involves getting funding for these new parties because it's, um, you know, no one has any money. And so it is, uh, again, Myanmar Egress takes on the job to try and get, and partly this is through aid money, but partly this is also through business networks where businessmen um, are encouraged to donate to the political cause, so as to create a limited plural system where there is some form of political choice. In parallel, obviously, we have the split of the NLD. And I think that that's something that Tan Shui, Senior General Tan Shui, had sort of wanted, and he had hoped that that would kill off the NLD. So by saying we're going to have the elections in 2010, understanding very much that um, Aung San Suu Kyi would be against um, her party standing for the 2010 elections, but that within her party there would be some who would want to stand, and that's how we see the creation of the NDF, the National Democratic Force. And um, the I think the regime's aim at that point was to sort of hope that that would kill off the NLD. That's obviously not what happens at all. So the NDF stands, they are in many ways, a very small, limited opposition. And then you have these small ethnic parties, which don't do too badly in 2010 within their own constituencies, given the facts, given this 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 mammoth USDP party they're standing against. I mean, in many constituencies, in fact, there was just um, the USDP standing, and in some cases, the NUP, which was the old socialist party, um, because there was just no one else that could stand because the NDF didn't have the money or the people to, to put one person to every constituency. And if it's a Bamal majority area, there wouldn't have been an ethnic party. So we end up in 2010 with um, an election result where many people feel cheated because um, the, on top of uh, having this massive party, which you know, which is available to the military, the ballot boxes are stuffed in some of the, not in all, but in some of the constituencies. Um, so with advanced votes, so this is something which is, um, let me just go back a little bit. Uh, uh, in, in, in Myanmar, the, uh, the, 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 
the voting took place in two in two I mean, sort of at two times. So there were the advanced votes for the military and for for um, uh, those people who were uh, working for for the Tatmadaw and for the regime. And then there were the, there was a ballot on the day, which means that in a, quite a number of constituencies where um, you know the certain opposition members might have thought that they would have won given the count of the day, given the turnout of the day, once the advance votes came in, which obviously had been um, tampered with, they, those, those um, seats were lost. So there was a great deal of disappointment and um, disillusionment across many of these civil society organizations that had worked towards trying to make this election perhaps not fair, and certainly not free, because that was not within their gift, but allow for... Um, uh, alternative candidates to those of the regime to be elected in some places. There was a lot of disillusionment. But in hindsight, when we go, when we step back and we look at early 2011, the results are not great, but you do have a number of non-regime people for the first time in power at a regional level and at a national level. So you have non-regime MPs. And that suddenly you have a different, you have different voices that become part of the system. So again, whilst it's, it, fe it felt at the time like a number of steps back, it ended up still taking the process forward. Um, and I know this sounds this sounds um, very, you know, it's, 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 you, you need the hindsight to be able to understand that. At the time, we all felt that we'd been cheated. That even with even with this mammoth party of the USDP, the regime had, on top of it, done the ballot box stuffing, and therefore had robbed people of a voice, of a legitimate voice, um, and there was a lot of disillusionment. But actually, in hindsight, those ethnic parties, that those ethnic party MPs that got elected, and those NDF MPs that got elected, were able to do quite a lot of work, surprising amounts of work, in fact. Sorry, are we talking 2010? I forgot 2012. <laughs> Want me to go on to 2012? Uh, perhaps briefly, yes. So yes, 20, so 20, so 2010, we have the elections. We have um, the USDP majority um, government comes into play. Tanshui had already decided who was going to be president, who was going to be Speaker of the House. Um, he had put, uh, he had finally balanced all the voices in what was going to be this new government, so that you would have um, uh, what he believed an ineffective president, a strong speaker. But, um, you know, a sort of uh, very conservative uh, first vice president who was going to keep everyone um, in check. And so he, the, the, actually, when you look at the, 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 the results in, in, in early 2011, when the people start taking their seats, you realize um, whilst it is more pluralistic and more participatory, there is um, uh, the, the way that the power has been distributed makes it very difficult to change very much. And so it comes as a surprise to everyone that in August 2011, when the government, you know, we haven't heard anything out of Nepido uh, since Xinjiang, more or less, so since, uh, since April 2011, um, nothing has really happened. The parliament was dubbed the 15-minute parliament because they just had sessions where people showed up, uh, were asked a question, there was a quick vote, and then people went home. So it was really, it looked very much like a puppet parliament. Um, and then suddenly things started to change quite dramatically. So um, what had happened um, between sort of March 2011 and August 2011, my understanding is that 
sort of more hardline conservative um, military uh, representatives versus more reformists had sort of battled it out. And the president, uh, Tim Sane, when he came to, when he started to come to power, the first thing he did is started to address the people, which was something quite new. So he started to give these um, speeches over the radio saying, this is what I'm going to do. And then he went away and got it done. And they actually continued this right through the five years. But in August 2011, so Aung San Suu Kyi has been uh, let, let out of house arrest. House arrest period has ended. Um, but you know, she's she's gone off and the NLD theoretically is not no longer a legal political party because they didn't stand for the elections in 2010. So actually they're an outlawed organization. And in August 2011, we find the president invites Aung San Suu Kyi to Naypyidaw. And we all wake up in the morning um, to a picture in the new light of Myanmar with the president, Aung San Suu Kyi, both standing under her father's portrait. And this is the first sign that this president is extremely serious about taking forward a reform process. At this point, no one knows how wide this reform process is going to go, but he had spoken in a speech about national reconciliation, and he had followed up by inviting Aung San Suu Kyi to Naypyidaw and starting a negotiation process. And this negotiation process allows the NLD to come back into the political fold and the NLD agrees to stand for the 2012 elections and Aung San Suu Kyi, as we all know them, um, became an MP and joined the government. Now, in many ways, this was a huge success for Tin Sein because he um, had re-included what was Myanmar's national hero or heroine in the political process and in a collaborative way by bringing her into the government through the 2012 elections. And um, that, you know, that, that, that then set the tone for the reform process, which starts um, after that. Thanks for that great synopsis of key events and personages. And another topic that you dedicate a lengthy chapter to in the book is the peace process with uh, armed groups that still in one form or another are operating autonomously on in the country's frontier regions, such as uh, the Chinese and Thai borders. Can you give us some sense of what's been going on with the peace process that's different today from in the past? And why does this process matter so much for prospects of lasting political change in Myanmar? So um, Myanmar started its life, or Burma in those days, as an independent country with um, in, in conflict, with lots of conflicts. So the Second World War really never stopped in many ways. So when 19, you know, when 1945-46, you have uh, the, you know, the Japanese and then the British, and actually the Japanese and the British uh, uh, wars on Burmese soil politicize and arm different ethnic groups and, and sort of split off people. So in, uh, to, a very big overgeneralization would be that ethnic groups were in support of the British and many of the, um, uh, well, the Bama and the, uh, uh, the Bama population was in support of the Japanese. And that sort of splits the country. And at the time of independence um, in 1948, you have various um, wars going on, partly also fueled by the Burmese uh, Communist Party, which is getting support from China, and um, you know you've got the Karen War, which is the long, which actually was the longest war in Asia until it stopped in 2012. So the country is at war and continues to be at war right through the 1950s and 1960s, and so we have three 
peace processes or three elements of this big sort of peace thing. Um, uh, and I can't really spend too much time on, on the on the first one, but effectively you have that that big uh, movement towards these unofficial, uh, non non written, non signed peace agreements under Kinyunt in the 1990s, which I spoke about briefly earlier on, which include pretty much everyone apart from the KNU. Um, obviously, there are some other groups which continue fighting as well, but the KNU is a sort of big one which continues fighting. But everyone else sort of stops, broadly stops fighting. And this is, um, this, these are not, this is not a political peace process. This is an economic peace process. This is about trying to exploit the economic riches of the um, ethnic uh, borderlands. And um, so that these, this peace, this peace that's, this, that's in place, or this, that's called the ceasefires that are in place. Um, they don't last. Um, you know, there's always skirmishes here, there, and everywhere, but also with regard to the constitution and the the, uh, um, uh, the government or the regime wanting those groups to join the border guard force uh, mean that there's tremendous instability and also tremendous repression, which continues. What changes in 2011, 2012 is the president, Tensein, goes and says, right, in order for us to be able to take this country to the next step forwards, in order to be able to actually have a reform process, we need to have a peace process. So it's not only about national reconciliation, it's also about peace. So President Tensein had four priorities. The first one was national reconciliation with the NLD. And he said that on the radio. I mean, I'm actually just quoting what he said. The second one was peace process with the ethnic armed groups. The third one was um, economic uh, development um, and economic reform. And the fourth one, which came a bit later in one of the later speeches, was education reform, because he saw that as underpinning economic reform and, and underpinning um, societal change. Um, so peace process, the peace process becomes incredibly important. And actually, at the start of it, Tinsane is quite a hardliner, because in 2011, aside from the fact that we have Aung San Suu Kyi going to Nepidor, we also have um, a resumption of war in Kachin State. So... Uh, a ceasefire that had lasted since the 1990s breaks down, and um, it's not about who started shooting first, but basically the war in Kachin State resumes, and the military goes in, um, guns blazing. Um, it's, it's, it's really horrendous, uh, with helicopter gunships and all the rest of it, and, 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 and right um, up to the KIA strongholds of Liza and Majayang. Um, so it's, it's really a proper war. This is not a small skirmish. At this point, President Insane is a hardliner and he wants the KIA to surrender. And then there is, over, a f over the next few months, a change of heart or mind. And I don't know where this came from, but in early 2012, we start to see a change of rhetoric coming out of the president's office with regard to conflict and peace. And um, one of the things that the, the president had started, he had started sending... Uh, different envoys to different groups to start talking about uh, a lasting ceasefire, a peace process. Um, and this this develops into what became the peace process, where the biggest change of the government is to say to the armed groups, you can negotiate together. Prior to this, all negotiations were always the regime or the Tatnador with one group or the other group, the divide and rule thing. 
here, President Tinsain accepts and agrees that the different ethnic armed groups can meet together, including on Burmese soil, on Myanmar soil, negotiate a common position and come back. And this is something which is unprecedented. And whilst the, the nationwide ceasefire agreement, which was signed in October um, uh, 2015, um, basically did not include all the groups. We only had eight out of the, you know, it was a dispute of it, 16 groups or 18 groups or 20 groups, depending on who you, who is in and who is out um, of, the, of the count. Um, despite the fact that this is seen by many as a failure because it's only eight groups to be signed, I don't see this as a failure. I see this as a huge success in terms of the first step towards peace. Because what it allowed, it allowed for all the different ethnic groups to come together and to negotiate face-to-face with the Tatmadaw and agree one text. The text of the ceasefire agreement was agreed by all. Where they all fell apart was who was allowed to sign, who was allowed to take part. And you know, that's, a, that's a longer story about resumption of fighting um, in Shan State and in, 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 in and Rakhine State and in other places and new groups emerging. Um, so I don't want to go there. But I want what I want to bring out of this is how the mindset of the government changed, allowing the ethnic groups to work together. And um, this is this is what has laid the path for today's peace process. So Aung San Suu Kyi has come in and said we're going to have. Um, uh, a new Panglong conference. We're going to have a 21st century Panglong conference, um, which is going to happen at the end of August. And um, she's been, my understanding is that she's been conciliatory and said we will have all groups, signatories and non-signatories represented at these negotiations. But in order to get to this point, we had to go through this realization by the Tatmadaw that it was okay to negotiate with all groups together at one table. And that's really the big Thing that Tinsane was able to achieve um, during his tenure. In contrast to the generally optimistic mood on the peace process that you've just described, the last substantive chapter of the book addresses a topic that many people think has marred the otherwise mostly good news story of Myanmar's political change in the last few years, namely the rise of Buddhist nationalism and correspondingly outbreaks of anti-Muslim violence. Can you please briefly describe the phenomena with which this chapter is concerned and what's your reading of those phenomena? So um, the rise of Buddhist nationalism is, uh, um, it is a rise in many ways, and I'm not the expert on Buddhist nationalism. There are many others who are, but it is a rise of a more radical um, right-wing movement, uh, which is supported by the monkhood, the Sangha. Um, Let me say a couple of words to that. First of all, anti-Muslim feeling, anti-Islamic feelings in Myanmar are not new. Um, every 10 odd years or so, very similar to what we see in India, um, there are anti-Muslim um, movements which gather pace around a rape or a murder or an, or an alleged rape or an alleged murder or something. And people go out and start um, fighting and there are you know, and and killing and looting and burning. So this is nothing new. In a small sense, it's nothing new because we've had the we've seen this before. Um, but till till very recently, there weren't any cameras on the ground, and this was not something that the regime tolerated. So normally, the regime came in. You know, the police and the army came in very quickly and shut down any of these riots, um, and uh, the outside world never got to hear about them. 
what is new um, is the, from a Western perspective, I tend to find that people tend to think of uh, the monk at the Sangha as good and the military as bad. And I think why people's imagination has been sort of sparked by this is because suddenly monks happen to be anti-Muslim and 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 on and rioting and part of mobs that are taking mosques apart. I mean, at the moment, we've just had one mosque in Kachin State and one mosque in Bagul, which both have been um, destroyed just, you know, in the last couple of weeks. So uh, people are a bit, people on the outside are a bit shocked by this. Actually, it's not that surprising because the uh, any society which goes through um, major economic and societal change, you saw this in India, for example, as well, tends to have a, we let's go back to the roots kind of um, imagination, kind of idea that comes up. And in many ways, the Sangha has come up, uh, embodiment, it's the embodiment of who are we? Who are the Burma? Who is, who are the Burmese? Uh, what defines our national identity and our national identity is Buddhist. And anyone who's really not, you know, not a Buddhist, can they be, can they be part of this? Can they not be part of this? I did a, a, a major piece of field work a few years ago where I was asking um, uh, young people about citizenship and asking them what their citizenship, uh, what, how they define citizenship. How do you define being a Burmese citizen, a Myanmar citizen? And um, in large amounts of cases, two thirds of the answers, um, being Buddhist was part of it. What was also particularly interesting, so we're talking about 2000 young people here across the country, including in ethnic areas. What was also interesting um, was how the right to live in this country was seen as, um, as you know, uh, uh, the, only, the Myanmar people didn't have any rights you know, under the military regime. But the right to live in the country is linked to religion and ethnic identity, the Burma Buddhist ethnic identity, ethnic and religious identity, which I think is uh, where we can then go and look at what's happening in northern Rakhine state, where there's obviously a Muslim community, which um, uh, is not wanted in Bangladesh and it's not wanted in Myanmar. And uh, it's an incredibly uh, sad humanitarian story uh, how these people have been treated and how they've ended up in camps. But it goes back the, the, to this identification with Burma Buddhism as um, the requirement to be a Myanmar citizen and to be allowed to live in the country. And this is what young people, old people, everyone in the heartland believes. And so this, this, is the, this, this, this in itself feeds into the Sangha movement which then supports this, um, uh, this this kind of identification, and obviously this is uh, um, this is what is uh, shocked everyone because Aung San Suu Kyi hasn't said anything with regard to uh, the Muslim populations of Rakhine State, the Rohingya, for example, because there are more than there are more there are more Muslim groups than just the Rohingya. Let's be absolutely clear: the Rohingya um, are one group, and then there are other Muslim groups across the country as well. And the reason that Aung San Suu Kyi hasn't said anything about the maltreatment of this community and about the Muslims in general is because she sees her the support for her and for the NLD coming from the Buddhist community. And um, if she were to stand up for these for the Muslim minorities, she would be seen as a traitor. And it is quite that stark. You have to put it this way. And um, whilst this doesn't make anything okay. I hope this is sort of a basic explanation as to what is going on and why suddenly what was seen as a uh, as a peaceful movement, the monks being a peaceful movement trying to change society has actually turned out to be a, 
right-wing Buddhist nationalist movement, um, uh, which to many people seems to be a contradiction in terms. You mentioned the field work that you did on citizenship. And as I recall, that work was done as part of a larger project on citizenship education and civic education. Uh, you've taught and researched education for many years uh, and have an intimate knowledge of educational reforms in Myanmar. You also have a chapter in the book on that topic, and it'd be remiss, I think, not to discuss it briefly before we close. So would you like to tell us something about how schooling and higher education in Myanmar have changed over the last decade and what your hopes and expectations are for this field in the future? Education has been really at the bedrock of my work, but um, I've been very fortunate because I was able to train a small research team whilst I was out in Myanmar um, with some a part of the EU project, and they're the ones who actually went out and gathered a lot of the data. But uh, whilst I've done a lot of travelling, a lot of data gathering, I wouldn't have been able to go to all the places uh, to get data, and my little team did that. But uh, so that's just as a by as uh, of where all this data has come from. I've done all of my data collection in the field for all these chapters, and all of it's based on original data. With regard to education, is this is where the story started? Um, as I mentioned in, when, in answer to your first question, um, I was able to go and visit some of the nascent uh, private schools in 2005, January 2005. 2005, where you really just had a handful of um, small private schools which had come in first as supplementary schools. And then later on, um, this became a big movement um, for private education in the country, which is originally actually illegal because all children are supposed to go to government school. And education changed dramatically because middle class parents, so as, as Myanmar was becoming richer, uh, middle class parents, so in nascent middle class, wanted to see their children educated better than what the government system could provide. So they were the ones who were willing to invest in a private school system. They were also the ones who were setting up private school networks. And at the t when suddenly regime, um, regime, senior regime officials started sending their children to private schools, that's when the legality of these private schools changed. This, is mean, this means that this has dramatically changed um, the schooling landscape, because you have a two-tier system, as in most of South Asia. In fact, um, Myanmar is following India and Pakistan and other countries um, where, where you know, the middle classes are sending their children to private school, and then the government system is really only for the poor. So quite a, quite a, uh, a revolution on an education scale, but it has also meant that this underpins the societal changes that we see um, without, I would argue, without this network of private schools, with the middle classes able to send their children to these private schools, we wouldn't see the embedding of any of these changes because where the state would just be controlling the narrative through the schooling um, and through and through textbooks, and so they don't control it anymore because there are alternatives. So, in many ways, education is at the origin of the Myanmar egress saw the opportunity of using adult education to change people's perception of what was possible and what was not possible. And middle-class parents followed suit by sending their children um, to middle-class schools. And so we have a change of middle-class society and they are really the agents of change. And arguably, a lot of the reforms we are talking about affect mainly the middle classes. And when you we haven't spoken about what happens in the rural areas and the poor areas and the dry zone and in the center of the country where these changes are um, whilst Myanmar is opening up and changing economically, 
the societal changes haven't yet sickened through because we don't have change as an education system. Um, but this is hopefully going to change as well because um, the last government, as I said, Tinsane's fourth priority was education reform. And this government sees, says that it sees education as an important um, place where to, to embed the reform process to start changing society. Um, I would argue that within the first 100 days of the NLD government, we haven't really seen very much change um, at government education level. But there are small things which are changing. So, for example, I'm doing a current project with the British Council looking at who's becoming a teacher and what's happening in the teacher training colleges. And we find that obviously now there is access to the teacher training colleges. Um, two years, three years, four years ago, there was no access to these teacher training colleges. And now teacher trainees are being um, exposed to new teaching methodologies and to more English. And so we're talking about, again, incremental change, but most things in Myanmar start at a very incremental level. Um, and so uh, this, this latest project about who's becoming a teacher and why and what is happening at teacher training level is incredibly interesting because that's what I'm sort of working on at the moment. Um, and hopefully there will be within these four, my hopes for the country are that within these next four or five years, we will see a radical reform of the curriculum of the way teaching happens, uh, a, a lifting up of the teaching profession, because at the moment teachers earn very little, um, next to nothing. And so in order to get good people to teach, like a Teach for Myanmar kind of program, you would have to actually make te the teaching profession respectable and well paid again. So that would change society across the country, not just the middle classes and the urban areas, which is where our, the reform process till now has really stopped. Well, you, you referred to your hopes and expectations for the education system, as I asked. And in a sense, the, the book really is a, a forward-looking book. Um, there's a great deal in it, of course, that we, we haven't covered, and I do urge listeners to take a look at it for themselves. But uh, the book, in any event, ends with the um, 2015 elections and anticipates further reforms in its contents. The country is confronted with a huge number of, at times, seemingly overwhelmingly challenges, but it's clear that uh, you, like so many other people, are optimistic about its prospects. Um, there are one or two other features of the current situation and looking ahead uh, among these challenges, one or two that you'd like to, to mention before we close. Yes, I think the most important thing I'd like to mention is that um, the, the reforms and the changes as we have seen over the last decade are driven and embedded by civil society. And I'm afraid that this current government um, and we, when we've had 100 days of this current government, but the, this current government doesn't seem to be that keen on civil society involvement in the same way that the previous government was or that, um, you know, prior to that, obviously, Tan Shui and regime didn't actually support civil society involvement, but civil society involvement happened. So I think the country will benefit most and will progress most if there is a collaboration between government and different, different civil society entities and actors. If there is, again, a sort of separation between the two, civil society is left to pick up the, the pieces that the state is not providing in health and education and so on, uh, but that they're not part of the policy-making process, 
then I think the country's reform process will stall or will at least um, slow down. Uh, it's the collaborative aspect which I want to um, emphasize, and I do hope that the NLD um, will uh, learn to see the value of collaborating with all these different civil society organizations. And there's a whole, there are thousands of them now, and it's a whole rainbow of activities which is happening. But it's the collaborative aspect which will take the country forward. Not, it, it's not going to happen top down with the government just leading and, and leaving out civil society. It has to be collaborative. That's a very interesting observation, and I hope that the, the message is heard. Um, and what about for yourself? You've mentioned one ongoing project that you have. What Can you say a bit more about what you're working on now and what we can expect to hear and read from you next? Yeah, so I'm currently working on, um, well, this British Council project, which I said, which is about teacher trainees and uh, what's happening in teacher education colleges. But I've just been commissioned to write a piece on a diversity in education systems. So whilst I, my entire life's work with regard to education has always said that it's important that the state is involved in education. And I'm the kind of person who, especially in India and Pakistan, has uh, always argued against the privatization of education, low-fee private schools, and so on and so forth. For Myanmar, I take a slightly different um, view. Uh, I'm, I'm writing I'm writing this, this, this current project on allowing as diverse an education system as possible. And the reason I'm doing this is because um, uh, this, the centralization tendency that we've just seen with the NLD with regard to, you know, not, not, not that keen on collaborating with civil, with civil society, but um, also sort of wanting to control what happens um, in, in schools doesn't really allow for this wide variety of different ethnic education systems that we have in the country. We didn't speak about that at all. I mean, a lot of my work has been on mother tongue based education, how schools in ethnic areas use mother tongue in order to be able to um, get children into schools and how that actually changes the dynamics because the poorest children of the ethnic areas are then able to actually learn. If you um, research shows, and this is Burmese research, this is research by Shalom shows that children in ethnic areas who go to a government school and have to learn in, in Burmese, they can't follow what the teacher says and so there they drop out. So um, a lot of the ethnic education um, systems that have been set up in Mon and in Karen and in Kachin State, for example, actually allow children to learn in their mother tongue. And I find that it's important um, to have this diversity of education systems and to let this grow a little bit organically as opposed to trying to control it, which is what we see now. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm writing on and working on at the moment to try and sort of lobby the government in many ways to see that those successful systems in the ethnic area should be supported and um, integrated and um, as opposed to sort of stamped out or perhaps marginalized, which is what I have the feeling is might happen um, unless there is a groundswell of of support. Well, um, that I wish you all the best for those projects and um, also thank you a lot for this tremendously informative discussion, for speaking with me today about understanding reform in Myanmar, people and society in the wake of military rule. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everybody for listening. I do hope you'll join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian studies. Hey,